Hey, welcome to The Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Our Bible reading today is from John 6, um, 41 to 68. So buckle up, guys. I'm going to be here for a while. Alrighty. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. All right, I'm going to pray for Mari as it comes up. Father, thank you for um, the words you have put on Murray's heart. We just thank you for our brother, for his faithfulness and, yeah, for, yeah, the way he is going to speak this morning. 
we just ask that you would, you would put your words in his mouth to share with us, that they would not be his own, but they would be straight from your heart to our hearts. Amen. Thanks, Lou. That was a bit of a hefty boy of a reading today. You did excellent. Morning, church. How are we doing today? Feeling all right? I've um, I got a bit of a funny story to tell you before I start. I um, have like a bit of a ritual on a Sunday where I'm preaching. I'll, you know, get up a bit early. I'll go into our little study area, open up my laptop, and I'll run through my sermon, sort of, you know, just to get it get it in me a bit. Um, so this morning I did that, opened up my laptop, and the laptop was completely fried. So no sermon slides, no sermon notes. I did my best to write down this sermon again from memory. So it's quite apt because I'm actually preaching kind of in a roundabout way on vulnerability this morning. There's nothing that's more vulnerable than not having everything that you'd prepared. But... I trust that although it wasn't saved on the Apple cloud, it was saved in the cloud in heaven, and it's going to come down to us this morning like manna from heaven. Amen? All right, let's get into it. So, if you have known me for a while and we've gone out and had a meal, you will know that I'm a big fan of food. Like, I, I love food. For me, food is an emotional experience. Brad and I went to Frango's this week, and for me, that was just like, oh man. Like, there were points where I was just like getting lost in the, the chili sauce, the chips, the chicken burger. It was amazing. For me, food is like the sixth love language, right? Like, I just absolutely can't get enough of a good meal. If I'm like sitting at a table with you, and I'm eating a really good meal, I might start making some noises that'll start making you feel a bit uncomfortable, like moans and groans. I'm enjoying this meal so much. And the thing is with this, there's a bit of a other side to this coin because when food is such an emotional thing for you, it also means that sometimes when I get a bit hungry, these positive emotions turn to feelings of irritability. So when Em and I were only dating for a few, maybe we'd been together for about eight months, so, you know, kind of still early stages, we're in the car together and we're speeding along the highway and I am getting hangry. Who knows the word hangry? Hangry is like added to the Oxford Dictionary in like 2015. It's an official word now. It essentially means when you are so hungry that you start to get angry. You get hangry, right? And this is this whole thing. I was starting to get a bit hangry in the car. I'm bubbling and bubbling and bubbling and starting to get more and more irritable, more and more irritable. And at a certain point, Em's had enough. She whips open the glove box. She pulls out a box of muesli bars and throws one at me, like the gremlin that I was. And I just start eating this thing because I had kind of turned into a bit of a beast. But the thing was, in this moment... This muesli bar, it was, it was like manna from heaven. It was sweet. It was crisp. There was just enough of it to make it through. It was beautiful. And in this moment, I knew that maybe this woman could be my future wife because she really understood me deeply, 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 deeply. And this is the whole thing that when I am hungry, I get hangry. And I'm sure that some of us probably get a bit hangry. But I want to talk about a different type of hangry this morning. I want to talk about when we're spiritually hangry. I want to call today's sermon, Spiritually Hangry. For any one of you who maybe read the pastor's desk this week, I shared one of my new favorite words, gongazo. Does anyone remember what it means, gongazo? 
Grumble, 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 grumble. The thing I love about this word, it's a Greek word, which means grumble, and it's onomatopoeic, which essentially means the word sounds like the thing it is describing. So like beep or moo, like gongazol is what the Greeks believed a person kind of sounded like when they were muttering under their breath. It's kind of fun to say, right, gongazol, gongazol, gongazol. But the best thing about it is there are some scholars that suspect that it was actually this, this word, this sound, was originally inspired by the sound of doves cooing. Which is kind of perfect, isn't it? Because it makes that grumbling sound even more ridiculous when you put in a gongazo, gongazo, gongazo. Like you cannot sound serious when you're saying gongazo in a high-pitched voice. And I think that is so apt for this word grumble because in reality, nobody, when they are grumbling, doesn't sound a little bit ridiculous, a little bit silly. Because ultimately, when we're grumbling, we're not actually grumbling about anything that is actually justified. Grumbling, okay, isn't even an emotion. It's a thing we do when we're not dealing with our emotions. Grumbling, okay, I think, is endemic of two things. Either you're scared at being truly vulnerable and expressing how you really feel, instead of being like, you know, actually... I'm feeling a bit hurt right now. Or actually, I'm feeling a bit overlooked. Instead of actually addressing that, instead of being vulnerable, instead of opening ourselves up, we just grumble. The other reason, I reckon, that we grumble is because we are unaware of those emotions that we're even feeling. It's not that we're not wanting to be vulnerable and, and express what we're really feeling. It's that we're so unaware, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg and we don't actually know what emotions are swarming underneath the surface. So I kind of pose to us this morning that when we're grumbling, it comes from one of two things. Either we are scared of being vulnerable and sharing how we really feel, or we're just so unaware of what's actually going on that we can't even begin to address that. And that's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at this idea of when these Jews, when these disciples were grumbling in this scripture, it was endemic of two things. They were afraid of being vulnerable and they were unaware of what was actually going on inside them. So, grumbling. We're either scared of being vulnerable or we're not living an examined life. The Greek philosopher Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm sure he said it in Greek, but you get the idea. The unexamined life is not worth living. And I kind of agree with him. So how do we not grumble? How do we do this? Well, I think John 6 has some little clues for us. See, earlier in John 6, because, you know, I didn't want to get Lou to read the whole chapter. Earlier in John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Well, actually, probably 15,000 at least because it was 5,000 men, so there were probably women and children there. It's a lot of people, right? He feeds them literally with bread and fish. He performs this miraculous you know, miracle where he turns a very small amount of bread and fish into enough to feed probably like 15,000 people. And then on top of that, just to you know, kind of show off, there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. Like That's some real leftovers that we've got going on here, right? So he feeds these people. He fulfills their physical need. He fills their stomach with fish and bread. But they're still hungry. Even those 12 baskets of bread and fish left over, they're still hungry. They're still grumbling. Their stomachs are grumbling. 
And that means their mouths are grumbling. See, if we jump over to verse 25 to 29, the Jews, they, they, they follow Jesus across this lake. And when they find him on the other side of the lake, this is verse 25 onwards, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me. <laughs> Not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, Jesus, will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. When they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answers them, real simple. What do we need to do to do the works that God requires? Very simple answer. Jesus answers in verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It's all, it's, it's, it's all he's asking of them. If you want to do the work of God, believe in Jesus. It's pretty simple, right? Like couldn't really get much simpler. And yet, they kind of struggle with this teaching. Because Jesus goes on to start sharing this teaching about how he is the bread of life. How he, like the manna that the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses all the way back in Exodus, received and lived off manna from heaven, this bread of life. He's saying, I'm, I'm the real bread of life. But unlike that manna in the wilderness that you guys ate and, you know, kind of needed again the next day, unlike that manna in the wilderness that, you know, went maggoty and rotted, I'm eternal bread. I'm bread of life. And then in verses 41 to 43, the Jews there begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. I'm going to be a bit bold here. And say, maybe there's some people in this room this morning who need to hear those words from Jesus. Stop grumbling. <laughs> Stop grumbling. I think it's probably a word from Jesus that we all need to hear at certain points. Stop grumbling. So, here's what happens. They start grumbling because Jesus says, I am the bread of life, right? But here's the crazy thing. Jesus hasn't even dropped the craziest part of this teaching yet. They're already grumbling just because he said that he's the bread of life, that he has come from heaven. And they're like, wait, isn't this like Joseph and Mary's son? And they start grumbling. And he hasn't even gotten to the craziest part. Because the crazy part, the part that even I, when I'm reading, I'm like, oh, this is some pretty intense teaching. In verse 55 to 61, Jesus says, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And on hearing this, the disciples go, this is a hard teaching. Like, who can accept it? Like, these are the people who are already following him. They're like, 
Jesus, do you want to like, I don't know, just like unpack that a little bit maybe? Or like if you're going to use such graphic metaphors, like just explain like, hey, by the way, it's an analogy. Or like, I don't know, it's a hard teaching, Jesus. It's a real hard teaching. You, you want us to eat your flesh and drink your blood. And aware that his disciples were grumbling once again about this, Jesus says, does this offend you? Does this offend you? See, I think, I think so often we're actually a little bit offended by the intense teachings that Jesus gives us. We're actually a little bit offended that maybe, like, Jesus, could you just be a little, a little bit more palatable? Like, could you be just a little bit more accessible? Like, these Jews, these disciples, they, they, they didn't want complex Jesus. They wanted easy Mac Jesus, right? They wanted something that was easy to share with friends, something that was quick, easy, accessible, something that didn't require too much work, right? Something that was easy to get behind and easy to believe. Can you just, can you just make it more accessible? Can you water it down for us? But Jesus says, no, nah, eat my flesh and drink my blood. You want to follow me? That's what you got to do. And his disciples go, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Because they weren't all in. See, they wanted a Jesus who's going to be their bestie. They wanted Jesus who was going to be their boyfriend, who they could like go out on a date with and keep their options open, you know, kind of it's complicated on Facebook. We're not all in, right? They didn't want a Jesus that was their husband. What am I saying? So all throughout the New Testament, there's this intimate, intimate symbol that we're given, this intimate analogy that Jesus is the husband and the church is his wife, right? This isn't just something that's like mentioned once in the New Testament. It's mentioned in all four Gospels, three of which Jesus is saying them in the synoptics. It's in 2 Corinthians, it's in Ephesians, it's in Revelation, like it's in there, right? Like obviously this is an important thing that we need to be getting our head around, that Jesus is the husband in this analogy and the church is his wife. Like there is nothing more intimate than that, Right? And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He's saying, I want, I want that kind of intimacy with you. I don't want you to just hang around and eat the bread and the fish and listen to my teaching and go home. I want you to let me be inside of you. I want to let us become one. I want my blood to pump through your veins. This is the kind of intimacy that Jesus is asking. This is why it's a hard teaching. Because Jesus is asking a lot. So for those of you who don't know, Catholics actually have this really interesting piece of theology around communion. They believe in a thing called transubstantiation, which, you know, big word for a very simple idea. Essentially, they believe that when they take communion, when they eat the bread, at some point during that sacrament, the bread literally transfigures into the very flesh of Christ. And that when they drink the cup, that it isn't just wine, that it at some point in this sacrament physically changes into the very blood of God. This is the sort of intimacy that Jesus is talking about. This is the sort of intimacy that 
he's trying to get us to understand. And the reason I bring this up is because some Catholic scholars sort of posture that if you believe in transubstantiation as a theology, which officially, as a Baptist church, we don't, but, you know, you're entitled to that belief. But if you do believe in transubstantiation, that the literal flesh of Christ and the literal blood of Christ enters your body when you take communion, there is only one thing that is in any way comparably as intimate, which is when a husband and a wife become one flesh. That ultimately when they are taking communion, they are consummating their relationship with Christ. This deep, deep intimacy of Christ as the husband and the church as his wife. This is what he's calling from us. So for me personally, in my life, the person who knows me better than anyone, good and bad, unfortunately, is my wife, Emily, right? And what this means is two things, right? It means as husband and wife, she's the person that I am the most vulnerable with, the most open with. I let her see everything, right? Literally and metaphorically. But the other thing is that because she knows me better than anyone, the good and the bad, she is the best person to call me into self-awareness, to call me into self-reflection to ask that question of, hey, what's going on under the tip of that iceberg? This is what Jesus is calling for us, the same relationship of vulnerability and self-reflection. And in that, when we fill ourselves with the flesh of Christ, with the blood of Christ, when we become so intimate with him that we are one with him, we are allowing ourselves into that vulnerability. We are allowing ourselves into that self-reflective state. See, Jesus' disciples and, and the Jews were gongazoing because they still had a vacuous hole in their life that they'd been trying to fill with bread and fish and probably wine and Netflix or whatever they did in first century Jew, Judaism. And essentially, it's this idea that there was something missing. They were still grumbling. Their mouths were grumbling because their souls were grumbling for Jesus, this hunger deep inside. And you know, it's really interesting. If, if a husband and wife, for whatever reason, were to stop being intimate in the way that husband and wives are, were to stop continuing to consummate their relationship, over time they're going to start to feel distant. Right? They're going to start to feel uncertain of, of the ground that they're on. They're going to probably start to become a bit dissatisfied in this relationship because it's missing the intimacy that is required. They're probably going to start getting a bit grumbly. It's this continual coming back and connecting with Jesus. This is what he's calling. And it's, 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 it's this idea that it's not just letting him inside, it's, it's, it's allowing part of us to become Christ, not just Christ-like, become Christ. 
I got to tell you this story. When I was a teenager, after church, we used to go sometimes to this Greek chicken shop. This Greek chip, chicken shop had the best garlic dip imaginable. This, this stuff was potent. Like, they probably should have given you some gloves or something to handle it. It was super, super potent garlic dip. And I used to get, like, a little bit of chicken, some chips, and this garlic dip. And I would just devour this, this really, really potent garlic dip. And the next morning, my dad would come into my bedroom, open up the door, and just go, whoa! It stinks in here. Like, I can smell the garlic that you ate last night because I'd consumed it and it become part of me. And when we consume Jesus in the way that he's asking for us to here, we will start to exude Jesus. We will start to have rivers of living water flowing out of us. This is what he's calling for us, to be so filled with him, to become so like him that the the, the two are inseparable. And ultimately, it cannot be denied that the two have become one. Jesus is calling us back into a deeper vulnerability with him. He's saying, let me in. If you're feeling a bit spiritually hangry, like, oh, I just, I'm just not a fan of reading the Bible, you know, it's just so dry. Oh, I just... I don't want to worship, you know, I don't want to go to church. It's just gongazo, gongazo, gongazo. I challenge you that maybe you need to be a little bit vulnerable and, and really let Jesus in. Let his Holy Spirit minister to you. And in that, allow a self-reflective process of his scripture, his word, his spirit, doing a work in you and allowing you to become more Christ. I might just call the band up. Now, I shared about that that theology that Catholics have around transubstantiation. And I, I thought at one point, I'm like, we should do communion. That's kind of not the point. It's <laughs> kind of not the point. Because we don't need to do communion to be filled with Jesus. It's a beautiful sacrament. It's an important sacrament and one that Jesus calls us to do. But we don't have to do that to have this kind of intimacy that Jesus is calling. All we need to do is be open, be vulnerable, and allow him to minister to our hearts. So as we worship now, Let me pray that we can do that in a more profound way. As we step out into this week, read his word, pray. May we become not more Christ-like, but more Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life. We thank you for the intimacy that you call from us. God, it is scary. That is a big call. You expect commitment. You expect intimacy. And you expect us to be transformed. 
Lord, just as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden became one flesh, Lord, we pray as we worship you, as we praise you, as we read your word, as we pray that, Lord, we would become a part of you inside of us. God, I just want to pray for people in this room, people who are watching, people who are listening right now, who have a hunger that cannot be filled with the things of this world. Whether it's literal bread, whether it's alcohol, whether it's whatever it is that they're trying to use to plug up that hole in their life that can ultimately only be satisfied, Lord, by you. I pray that they would be vulnerable right now to allow you to fill that place to allow your spirit, to allow your word to minister to them, to how they can become into a closer likeness of you, Jesus. God, let us feast on you daily. Let us be filled with the bread of life. And let our eyes be set on eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Center Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.